0: My guest today on The Deep Dive is Professor Andre Brock Jr. Andre is an associate professor of media studies at Georgia Tech. He writes on Western technoculture and Black cybercultures. His scholarship examines race in social media, video games, web blogs, and other digital media. His book, Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures, is where we're going to be spending the majority of this conversation. And I'm really, really glad to have Andre on the show with me. So welcome to the Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. Now, as we kind of talked before we got on mic, the book is dense in the best way. Like That's a high compliment because I think you've taken a reality that is, you know, very central to the way we spend our time online. And that is also expanding. So even as we're having this conversation, a lot of these notions around African-American cybercultures, cultures, techno monocultures in particular, all of those things are kind of shifting, even as we're trying to understand them. So you're taking on scholarship in real time. And I really want to give you You know, props for, um, you know, wading into that space. So, really, my first question is listeners might be familiar with terminology like cyberculture and the way in which that has become a catch all term for really how we interact with the internet. But this layering and making a distinguishing point to African American cybercultures is critical. And I want you to kind of walk through why you thought that distinction needed to be made and where the distinction in, in a practical sense really lies.
1: It's a great question. Okay. So for me, a lot of things start with Du Bois's statement of double consciousness. The Negro is born with a sort of veil, a seventh A seal that allows him to see where he belongs, so on and so forth. Right. And so, from that, I've always understood that in many ways, we are not perceived as being legible to the world of white Western modernity, even though we're used as a baseline for whiteness to uh, appreciate its own self and its achievements. Right. So, in his second autobiography, Dusk of Dawn, Du Bois has this long allegorical conversation with an imaginary interlocutor. And he says, you know, the imaginary guy says, well, how would you dare compare the fineness of London or of New York and the dress styles of women with, you know, people in the Savannah and Africa? And Du Bois just retorts, lions have no historians, right? And that phrase has always stuck with me because if you're constantly being hunted or if you're living in your natural environment, living a life where you are part of an ecosystem, what need for history, right? You are a natural and in, inhabitant of that ecosystem. And so for me, I set out to, from the moment I got into grad school back in 2001, I set out to try to argue for the fact that Black folk are naturally technologists. And at the time, the digital divide stuff was really, really popular, both in the mainstream and in policy discussions in the academy. And the thing about it is that it works off a deficit narrative, that Black folk don't have the material capacity. They don't have the economic capacity. They don't have the literacy and they don't have the connectivity in order to participate fully in what people envision as the digital world. And that never really felt right to me. As a kid, I had a Commodore 64 at an Atari, right? As a young adult in New York, I was coming up in the nineties and, you know, Q-tip do you know the importance of a sky pager, right? (laughs) People with alphanumeric pagers. And so I saw us deeply enmeshed in using the technologies of the day in ways that weren't necessarily understood by the mainstream, but we were very much doing it in a way that fit with how we saw ourselves in the world. And so to me, the distinction between cyberculture and African-American cyberculture is not meant to be revolutionary or anything. It's just to point the attention of those who are making the rules and dispersing the monies that we have our own way of dealing with space and time. And in this particular case, space and time through the computer. So there's the cyber for you, right? Uh, I'm actually trying to bring cyber culture back. It was a big term in the 90s and then it fell out of out of play uh, in part because of Web 2.0. And so understanding that we bring our informational selves the ability to manifest Blackness without necessarily having recourse to the physical into this cyberspace, thanks to the capacity of the computer and the internet. And so African-American cyberculture is really an important formulation. It ended up being an important formulation for me as I went through the book. And, you know, I want to spend a a little bit of time, just one of those departures that I kind of warned you about,
0: because you mentioned like a, a, I think a really, you make a really important distinction and I guess we're somewhat, generational contemporaries. You know, I had the same Commodore 64 that my dad got me from a radio shack and I didn't have an Atari at the time. My boy down the street had an Atari, but I had a ColecoVision eventually, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, that was like the three-way war back in the day. It was Atari, ColecoVision and Television. Intelliv- we're like, we're <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like your big, your big battle, you know, for who was going to have, you know, video game supremacy in the hood. But I think what's what's really important in that conversation is that, A, you do mention the fact that these digital realities, these technological realities have always been part of the Black experience Mm -hmm. on many different levels, whether recreational or more serious. And then when you talk about pagers, you know, also have one of those. And I want to use that as an opportunity to talk about how Blackness will take these forms and also use them in ways that were bigger than their intended purpose. Or maybe the creators of those things didn't see the language that developed, you know, at least the alphanumeric language that developed with pagers. You know I remember certain pages, certain numbers at the end of a page meant certain things, right? Some were obvious like. 911, right? Like call me back right away, but but others meant other things, <laughs> right? Depending on, on who they came from. And I'll leave that open to interpretation. So, you know, a lot of that in a way kind of ties me to Black vernacular mm-hmm. and how we communicate, which I think also gets translated through these new or maybe not so new cyber cultures. So, you know, big question, but I want to kind of give you an idea to kind of walk through some of that adaptive nature of how we
1: live in these spaces. So I do a digression in the respectability chapter, and I talk about respectability as fighting for a, a space to speak in a public sphere. And one of the earliest ways that I tried to dig into that was looking at Black radio, right? Right. And Black radio is really interesting, especially around the time of civil rights, because you have this new medium that's being promoted in many of the same ways the internet is, right? It will be democratic, it will be influential, it will be educational, it will be archival, right? And so you have places like the Fist Jubilee Singers doing full-on concerts on the radio, right? And the churches doing sermons on the radio, and women's groups doing home economics on the radio. And the Black intelligentsia, the elites, the leaders were really pressed to use this vehicle of modernity, this new medium, right, to promote, again, an informational blackness, to use the airwaves to try to reach people that they couldn't have reached before. But at the same time, there were these black disc jockeys, right? And if you are familiar, I mean, they don't do the banter like they used to do in the 70s and 80s. So if you remember the movie Do the Right Thing and Samuel Jackson's character, right, there used to be a whole genre of really verbally dexterous disc jockeys on the air who would their personality would be the driver as to why people came to them. They would break records occasionally, right? They would play music or take requests, but their thing, people tuned in to listen to their wit. I think in some ways, Tom Joyner and the syndicated Black hosts have kind of taken over that function. But at the time, it was really amazing because they drew from jazz vernacular, they drew from blues vernacular, and they drew from our natural love of wordplay and wit and signifying to create these really unique personalities. And the Black elites would be vexed because no matter how respectable the cooking show they put on with local celebrity housewife or politicians, mother-in-law, the Black DJs would just have much larger audiences. They, the, 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 the church folk would be vexed. They're like, well, oh, why can't we get our people to focus on getting ahead and being better people? Why are they fo- listening to this stuff? And so that always brings me back in the idea of the vernacular is that I love the wordplay of the mundane, the everyday, as opposed to strictly focusing on what we can do to get ahead or get over. Well, getting over is part of the everyday, but get ahead, be more educated, make more money, put our kids in better schools. That stuff is important. But before you get to that, we have built this entire community and way of understanding ourselves through our love of wordplay and wit. And that manifests across almost every medium. Right. And so that's the part I chose to focus on when writing this book, because I find that the access to social media through the smartphone, but also through the wider adoption of browsers and laptops and tablets has let people who have everyday mother wit come to the online spaces and be themselves. And it's the best stuff to pay attention to, to listen to, to watch, because it's super informative of who we think we are as a people when we're not performing for someone else right? And I find that goes back to our, who are we naturally? How are we doing things when we're not observed? And that sits right in there. The love, the best part for me is that the technology allows me to archive that, to study it at my leisure, to then even theorize about it, which nobody on my timeline is really asking for. But I think it's really important to take your point to the next level, to begin to theorize what it means for us to do these things in these spaces over and over again. Despite the fact that we're oppressed and somebody kneeled on our neck, and somebody got shot, and we are underemployed and underpaid, right? We still find time to craft joy out of whatever moment we're in. And that part is really important to me. You know, I love how you're kind of framing that. And
0: I wonder, as someone who does kind of self-describe as a little bit of a technological Luddite, you know, I don't jump onto every every platform the minute it, it formulates itself, but I love this idea of Black joy as an expression, you know. I think joy is actually a a radical tenet of activism and Mm. of and of change, just generally. You know, I think about organizing spaces. Sometimes you you see those spaces online, and I'm like, you know, I might agree with some of your policy, but I wouldn't really want to be around you. Like you're just a lot (laughs) right now, despite the fact that we might see each other from a policy or political point of view. And I'm curious about kind of that ratchet chapter because I meant to get to this later, but I'm fine to to kind of jump to it now because we're in that moment now. And there is a a richness to online discourse that lives within communities that I think intrinsically get it, quote unquote. They're sort of the inside living. And I'm, I'm sure all communities have this, but I think Blackness is unique because a lot of our inside stuff becomes the outside stuff. And then folks start to, you know, lean into it. So I wonder, it reminds me of, of conversations that we would have where it's like, oh, you know, now you air in our dirty laundry, so to speak. Or, you know, you're letting others know the things that we only talk about amongst ourselves. And the internet, by its nature, is never just amongst yourself. Again, in a kind of sprawling way, I'm I'm curious about how do we, or should we even, manage some of those realities, not because of the respectability politics of it, but because of, at least in my mind, the co-option of the things that are really important to us that now become part of the world in a way that they don't know or can't appreciate.
1: Hmm. So I will say whiteness is voracious, right? Right. Every space that whiteness has colonized the non-white world, it has taken up the food ways, the dance traditions, the aesthetics, and tried to apply them to their own bodies. So I'm specifically thinking right now of yoga, right? And how, you know, yoga has become this worldwide phenomenon, completely divorced from the philosophical and religious traditions from which it originated, right? For blackness, I think one of the things I get frustrated isn't the right word. I get vexed. Right. Sometimes because I think people forget that blackness was not created in a vacuum. Like there's always, and there's no such thing as a culture that exists solely by itself. It's always an interplay with other cultures. And it just so happens that we were brought here by a culture that was intent on strip mining us for everything they could get for us. Right. And in some ways, that In many ways, that has proven to be terrible for the black community, right? Because we can't, it doesn't seem like we can own anything. But then I push back and say, well, is ownership the sum of everything you aspire to, right? And people will push back and say, well, if you don't own it, you can't make money from it. I'm like, is money the only thing that drives you? And then, you know, that's where I start bringing this joy back in because, you know, if you, there are lots of people who make tons of money and they're not happy, right? So obviously money solves a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve every problem. So I keep trying to bring it back to joy, but people are really resistant because folk are struggling. And I completely understand that. In terms of appropriation, so Lauren Michelle Jackson wrote this really provocative article and her book is out. I can't remember the name of it, but she's at Northwestern. She's super dope. And she wrote about a thing she called digital blackface, where she felt that white folk were appropriating gifts of black women and other celebrities other black celebrities reacting to certain things. And she was like, well, why should white people be allowed to take these images of black people for their own emotional purposes, for their affect? And it's a provocative concept, but I'm like, white people in America don't realize how black they are, right? No matter how stiff they are on TikTok videos and looking like they're counting off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? (laughs) No matter how stiff they are, they have grown up under the Over the boundary of Blackness and under the shadow of Blackness for their entire lives, right? And so in many ways, when Americans go to the UK or to Europe, they immediately become imbricated in this Black-influenced Western culture, right? They can't escape it. And so when Lauren brought that concept up, I see it as provocative in part because it says, well, Black people can't have nothing. They won't even let us have our own facial expressions. But I'm also like, because these cultures exist and are penetrated, for white people, blackness, and this is Toni Morrison's stuff from Playing in the Dark. White people rely on blackness to express their deepest, innermost feelings, their visceral nature, their passions, their desires, their fears, their hatred. So taking gifts is just an extension of a much longer artistic, literary, and aesthetic tradition that they have. And it's a problem, but it also is a problem for those black celebrities who were captured in this digital format, who had no say. And whether or not their images could be reproduced or used or even monetized, right, to make these affective moments for Black and white people to use, right? So are you saying that Nene was intentionally playing the, well, Nene's not a good example, (laughs) Tiffany Pollard, (laughs) (laughs) Tiffany Pollard with all her personality, right, New York right? And all the ways in which she was so expressive and visceral on the various VH1 shows she did, she didn't do that worrying that white people were going to create, take her stuff later on and use it to react. She was being herself. And thanks to this technology, we have all these marvelously emotive reactions that are applicable to so many situations, and they're going to be used by multiple cultures. We can't control that. What we can control is making sure that people don't understand Tiffany as a one-note person, right? She is not simply Simply to be reduced to her reactions. And now I can let Nini free. Nini is not simply her ratchet reactions on Real Housewives, right? She is a complex person, but we capture this moment because we connected with her in our heart and our gut, right, for those moments. And we continue to use those expressions to express ourselves when we have moments in digital space. And so it's a tough question, right? Because we're constantly working under racial capitalism and Labor capitalism, we always need to figure out how to make money in order to survive, but there's more to life than survival. Right. There is this expressivity that I keep coming back to that I think is essential to who we are and how we navigate the world. And we also, I think, I think there's a distinction
0: in like I don't think I read that particular article, but I've kind of followed the the blackface conversation in its various formats. And, you know, not expert, but it lands in a different, a different way to me, because people are, in some cases, actually taking on the identity of Black people for purposes, for social clout, to kind of get into conversations as part of the inside group, mm-hmm. sometimes to misinform, sometimes to mislead, sometimes to just sow dissent. And I view that Again, not having the scholarly lens, but I view that as a different type of use mm-hmm. than gift use, which in a weird way, I'm kind of landing in the it's in the universe mm-hmm. and you know, what am I gonna do with that right? Like some gifts work well I mean, I love parks and recreation. I use gifts from that all the time, <laughs> but you know, I don't live in Pawnee, right so <laughs> lighter analogy, but you know, I think the question around ownership is a very real one. And it, it reminds me of the conversations that we're having that I'm seeing at least now more frequently with, let's say, Clubhouse, where mm-hmm. so much of, of Clubhouse in terms of the popularity spike from its early days where it was, you know, primarily a tech VC conversation to now being a much broader conversation, much of that powered By Blackness, Black celebrities, Black topics, Black art, and that has now become, I would say, a huge part of how they're promoting the site, directly Mm -hmm. or indirectly. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people ask about ownership in something like Clubhouse. And I'm curious to get your take on it. You know, mine is, it's
1: harder to pin that down, but I'm curious what you would think about it. So, I see Clubhouse is following the Twitter model uh, intentionally. Twitter didn't know it had a model, right? But Twitter's openness of the API and its willingness to adopt conventions that people came up with for discourse led it to becoming super popular among certain groups. And the way in my Twitter article and in chapter, I think, three is of the book, I talk about the ways that Black Signifying maps onto the functions and features of Twitter, right? Clubhouse, in a similar way, mimics the stoop. Right. But before it was the stoop, it was the coffee shop for the tech bros and the VCs. Right. And they realized that that was only going to take them so far. Right. It was Clubhouse was flailing. Its MAUs were down. Right. Until they decided to open it up to Black influencers. And then all of a sudden, they have this community which loves to hear itself talk to and with each other, join this Clubhouse space. Right. Where they could build out basically stoops, barber salons, I mean, barbershops, salons, and everything else to have the conversations that we've been dying to have, but had not been able to have because of the pandemic. Like we always need to keep the pandemic in mind, right? It it changed our sociality in many ways. So Clubhouse has been blowing up. In many ways, Twitter has become an advertising platform for Clubhouse because people will come back and say, well, I heard this conversation you should have heard and we can't say whose names, right? And so from that measure, I know that Clubhouse is popular. But I also, because, you know, I talk to different folk in the tech ecosystems, I realize that when Clubhouse founders go looking for VC money, they don't talk about the Black folk that are necessarily bringing them up because any association with Blackness would deprecate their earnings potential, their finance potential, because Black folk are not seen as credible in all senses of the word, right? Or a community to invest in for this particular application to scale. And I'm saying this thinking though, specifically of Black Planet, right? Omar Wasau and Gary Duffin and and, and those others talking about their adventures and trying to get VC funding for this and the many ways that when they tried to highlight the technological agency, the technical agency of Black folk, the VCs were like, eh, Black folk don't know how to code in HTML. There's no way they would be interested in creating their own homepages, right? So Clubhouse has a is a double-edged sword. Like We want to be seen as bringing... We want to be seen for the value that we feel we're bringing to Clubhouse, but Clubhouse only tricks off of that, and I use that intentionally. They trick off of that to bring attention to them, much like Triller, right, was inflating its numbers in order to get sold. They're tricking off of our personality, our presence, in order to drive popularity. But at the end of the day, they don't care about Black people. They're trying to get VC funding to scale and continue to put money in their pockets. They're not as interested. And so, when I hear people say they want to be paid for their participation online, I always come back to this joy thing, right? Everything is not about money. Do you want your utterances to be copyrighted so that nobody else can use it? They're like, yeah. I was like, okay, so are you going to pay to use someone else's utterances? They're like, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) And so be careful what you ask for, right? If you want to be part of the system, you have to be part of the whole system, right? That creativity and invention you bring because you're working around the strictures of modernity and capitalism and technology that stuff is what is valued even when it's not putting money directly in your pocket you're still getting value from that and that's a hard thing to convince people of and you know that
0: reminds me of you know early hip hop right mm. like this is an imperfect music break but when De La first album dropped and you had the skits like that was one of the first Records I remember, a it kind of birth skits, but then it also was a record that I remember being a conversation around sampling for the first time. So, you know, I was late teens when that record came out. And so, an idea of sampling as a legal structure, you know, I'm, I didn't go to law school, right? So, I didn't know, really know what all that meant, but I remember it being like, oh, these bands are kind of coming at day because. They use a piece of their music and this is a big thing. And what you just explained reminds me of that. In the early years of hip hop, you know, samples being cleared. What did that all mean? Even the artists didn't understand what that really meant. Mm -hmm. But now as these things mature, we're starting to understand that these, you know, these privacy agreements that we're signing, the use of our of our work, you know, written audio, otherwise, visual, Mm -hmm. pictures and video, all of this is now being owned by others. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, we are contributing to that because like you said, we're using this stuff too, right? In the same way early DJs just mix records, folks are mixing, whether it's TikTok or Clubhouse or Twitter or wherever. So how do we avoid this idea of commodification where everything needs to be a hustle. Everything needs to be bought and sold and itemized, right? Like I think about
1: versus me and my boys laugh about this all the time.
0: I didn't really need all them sponsors, right?
1: (laughs) It ruined the whole experience from when Swiss beast was just drunk in the front seat of his car sharing music with Timbaland. Like I remember those first couple of episodes and it's like, it's completely changed for the worse. Absolutely. It's hard to take that out
0: of the mix. And, you know, I want to, but I think this idea of in many ways there's, we're asking folks to restructure the way in which we do these things while also in the face of a capitalist model that encourages us to do the thing that hurts us, Mm -hmm. you know? So
1: fix me. How do we solve this? (laughs) (laughs) I think you hit on, I hit, you hit it right on the head, right? Because. The dream is that you will not only make money, but you will retain control of whatever it is, your utterance, your product, your t-shirt, whatever. And the reality is, is that they're asking you to sell the whole thing. So I'm thinking specifically of natural hair care brands like Shea Moisture and Carol's Daughter, right? But I'm also thinking about Jay-Z, right? Jay-Z was touted as being an owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Jay-Z owned like 0.17%. And they use Jay Z to get people in Brooklyn to be comfortable with the ways that the Barclays Center. You know this. You got a nine one seven area code, right? The Barclays Center really tore up that neighborhood and changed the way it was already changing. Right? Fort Greene and all those other places had long had immense speculation on residential stuff, but the Barclay Center added another layer of that to it. Right. And so people are like, well, Jay-Z is a billionaire. And I'm like, well, how did Jay-Z get to be a billionaire? Who did he sell in the process in order to get to that point? Like what tangential interest did he have in something that he could then leverage to get a piece of the pie that he's still not an owner of? And so the same thing I think goes for the verses, right? This was something that began ad hoc using a feature that people really weren't using on Instagram that really wasn't built for music interplay like that. And they built it out into an ecosystem and managed to bring on brand partners. And so the natural evolution was that they were going to sell it to somebody. That was always their goal, right? And what people don't realize is this is how it inevitably happens in the system of racial capitalism. We come up with something and we sell it to whiteness and then whiteness debases it, but guess what? We've already moved on to the next. Right. That's what we do. We're good at finding what the next is, making it hot, making it valuable. Hopefully we can extract some value from it. But even if we don't, we still enjoy it. And then whiteness takes it and ruins it. Right. You're old enough to remember the furor over the phrase, getting jiggy with it. <laughs> 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 and how once it began coming out of non-Black mouth, we just was like, okay, we're done yeah. with this word. What's the hit right Seinfeld, there? we're done. Like there's no point in us having it. And so, you know, I understand that people want to be compensated for their work, but I also think about how black influencers are paid, you know, 90% less than white influencers. So you're willing to get a check, even though you're not necessarily seeing that your check is still going to be less than a white person who adopts your values because whiteness is what's valued and their capacity for extraction, not black invention. Right. And we've gone way far apart from technology, but I think this fits in a lot of conversations. So, one of the things that I've really had a lot of interest in and I haven't written about yet is what some people call LLC Twitter or Rise and Crime Twitter. And I don't know if you've seen the memes. Someone's like, would you take $800,000 or 800 credit score? <laughs> and there are a number of people who are like, well, I would take an 800 credit score and flip it and be able to get this, that, and the third. Like, but you don't have money. You just got a credit score. Right. Yeah. And so this is a conversation that goes on and on again. What? How deeply are we implicated in this system of capitalism and modernity? And how much do we profit from it? Right. And what do we do? And then it comes back to what do you determine to be profitable? Right. Is it the fact that you make money? Yeah. But what else is there to it? I'm sorry. I keep coming back to that, but I think your questions are kind of leading me in this direction again and again. They're interconnected. They are interconnected. And it's almost impossible to break all of this
0: out into like a platform that, okay, we're just talking about this. We're just talking about another because it is language and Mm -hmm. it is how we shape things and where we value them. Right? So, you know, it's just a, I just find it almost impossible to to separate these things because they flow in and out of the quote unquote, real world that we inhabit and live in. But it also lives in this, you know, cyber culture world. You know, mm. one of the things that that I've seen a lot because I follow a lot of academics and thinkers, you know, people like yourself and many others, is this constant talk about attribution. And so the idea of attribution, I think is taken very seriously in academic spaces, right? Mm -hmm. So those of us who were just students understand we had to, you know, footnote our thing and, you know, all of that stuff. Those who are academics for a living, I mean, your book is, dude, with citation, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like all the way through. But then when we come into technological and digital spaces it becomes fuzzy and so not only are you dealing with co-option of blackness you're also dealing with the co-option of intellectual property and as much as i'm loath to use that word of intellectual property cuz i i think trademark and copyright is used to hurt communities more than to help them but you get where i'm going with this like we are in a space where Attribution and where ideas are born from, where they come from. Even talking about verses, right? You know, I'm I'm not gonna drop his name in this moment, but there's a brother who's like, "Yo, I came up with that idea," versus Timberland and you know others. He's like, "Yo, I'm the one who said that," because he put it on Twitter, right? And he got screenshots and the whole, <laughs> the whole nine yards. That's a technological thing, but it's also bigger than that, right? So how do we wrestle with this? attribution co-option because you're academic like
1: you live in it it's an interesting phenomenon because at least specifically speaking as an academic i've definitely run into headwinds online because people are like well you can't use my tweet post instagram whatever because i want to be compensated for it And i'm like but not getting compensated for it. Like I'm doing this because we have carved out a fair use exemption to write about these things which we don't own, but that we have access to. Right. And so that's always something troubling. And I understand why people want to get paid. Right. But when it comes to attribution, I always bring up TikTok because TikTok is a really fascinating case to me. TikTok, at least in its Asian variation where ByteDance runs it in China and Korea and the other places, right? Is built to recognize The music that is going under the video and to pay the artist for that. It is not built to do any other attribution, right? So you don't have to shout out where you got this move from. You don't have to shout out where you got these graphics from. You don't have to provide any provenance for anything you do other than the music. And so Jalea Harmon's use of K Camp's Renegade to do her dance, right? The dance is what brought people in. But people quickly realized they could recreate her dance moves and just give Kay Camp the credit for the renegade dance, right? And so you see Charlie D'Amelio and all these other folk making bank off recreating this baby's dance poorly, right? (laughs) I love the video after the NBA All-Star last year where she did the dance in front of the two white girls and she ate them up. Right. She, she, you could just see the joy and back. I'm back to joy. You could see the joy and the passion in her movements that they were just recreating mechanically because they thought it was cool. Right. And so TikTok is built only to recognize that particular musical thing, only to attribute. Right. So Jalea Harmon got ate up by the algorithm and the platform because it was not designed to give her credit for that. And that's universal across many forms. When you sign, pretty much any user terms of service agreement, you agree to let that platform have an unlimited eternal license to whatever you post. Now they'll say, but you own your content, but we can license it and share it with third parties. How sway, how does that work? If I own it, but you can sell it to anybody, then what exactly am I getting from my ownership? Just pride in place. Right. And so when people fuss because they're like, well, you took my tweet. I was like, actually, I took the embed of your tweet that was on newswebsite.com. Right. So I use Twitter's third party license to recreate your utterance. Right. Is that taken directly from you? You let the paper use and didn't have a problem. Right. And so attribution is a murky thing for digital spaces. And we could go back to Benjamin talking about art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Is the reproduction of the original the same as the original? Right? Does the artist deserve compensation for these reproductions? Even though they're indistinguishable from the original, they are not the original. They are simply pixel by pixel data point by data point reproductions. And Benjamin was rightfully incensed by that. Right. And we've gone so far past that to where now we're looking at deep fakes, right. Where they're putting people's faces, a celebrity's faces in all kinds of work. Porn is always usually the test bed for this. Right. But they're putting yeah. it. does the celebrity own their face? Yeah. Whose face does Khloe Kardashian have this week? right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <you> Chloe <laughs> Ana v- Venti, because apparently this week she looks like Ariana Grande, right? Who owns these things? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, and so it becomes really murky. And then, so I keep, and this is why I keep coming back to joy, right? This mode of invention, this mode of creativity that we have kind of, it's all we got. So Afro-pessimism, which I'm, interested in, but not an adherent of, says the Black is not entitled to any mode, means, or output of production in white Western society. And unfortunately, I kind of agree with that. We're not going to get compensated in the same way that a white person would for taking our work, right? We will get a pittance, right? And so are we going to be happy with that pittance? No. Will we get paid? Sometimes, right? But what more... But this is a conversation I have with students who come to me who want to work with me. So for a while, everybody wanted to talk about the natural hair care online community. Big thing, right? Very understudied. Like, there's no way you could really grasp it. And these young scholars would come to me and like, I want to talk about how Black women are just going online to make money from doing hair. And I'm like, I think you need to talk about how Black women have loved doing hair from jump because it showcases their creativity and invention. Nobody who doesn't love doing hair gets popular doing hair online. Yeah. Right. So yes, you can talk about influencers and their sponsorships and the ways that they may or may not make money from it. They usually don't. There's a a ton of them that don't make any money. But first you have to start with why they did it in the first place. Where was their love? Where was their passion? Because you can quickly tell when somebody don't care. They're just in it for a buck. Right. And those people might make some money, but they'll never be as loved as the people who are passionate about it. And so yeah, this attribution is a murky thing, right? Because do we want to be fully invested and labor capitalism, right? Do we want to say that everything has an exchange value, even our passion, right? Because that's a really shitty, I'm sorry, that's a terrible road to go down in the long term, but people want to eat. Yeah. Shitty is okay. That's a, (laughs) that's a, that's a
0: fine, that's a more than fine and legitimate way to kind of sum up the situation because you get, you get caught in this loop and it's really, really hard to break out of it. And the, you know, I, I made a note about this, you referenced this quite a bit in the book, this libidinal perspective, you know, how do we tie, you know, and I kind of juxtaposed that with sort of the political economy isn't constructed to do that, right? To kind of speak to, I think, what you're talking about. But I, you know, I had the, the pleasure of, um, being in conversation with um Adrian Marie Brown, with you know her pleasure activism. And there's many other, I would say primarily women thinkers who are anchoring around, you know, pleasure and which is an adjacent emotion to joy, right? And you know, how do we incorporate that into African-American cybercultures when the political economy of just our lived experience sometimes is filled with lack of joy, you know? So help us. Again, I'm always, I'm like, you know,
1: Obi-Wan. <laughs> I mentioned Afro-pessimism earlier. Afro-pessimism is how I ended up being, coming to fall for a libidinal economy. And I started with Frank Wilderson's Red, White, and Black, and then I went to Jared Sexton, and then I went to Fred Moten. And f- these scholars have really done a lot of work in using the literary to talk about how the world is an anti-Black space and that anti-Blackness is, evinced, is evoked in almost every art form, technical form, social form, infrastructure, and everything else. Right? And the key thing is that the Black has no place in this world other than to be used. And so I was trying to figure out how I could use this uniquely Black perspective, right? And they're pulling from Fanon and other folk, right, Franz Fanon, to talk about technology. And I realized it wasn't enough, right? The libido is a good place to pull from, but strictly focusing on how we are exploited doesn't do enough to explain why we still persist, right? And there's a point where Sexton says, you know, there are spaces where black folk do enjoy themselves, but it's kind of a pathologized enjoyment, right? It's not really real because we can ever we can't ever really have our own joy in this space. I'm like, fam, that's so harsh. Yeah, That's right? a lot. Dude. <laughs> that does not that I mean, I go back to Cat Williams often because he's much smarter than he's given credit for. And he's like, You gonna be gangbang on breakfast? You mad at bacon? Like bacon is delicious. You can't be mad at all the time, right? And that that kind of influenced me. And so Fred Moten, in particular, talks about Afro optimism, and he says blackness is sociality, which I completely agree with, right? But also blackness is celebration of life in the funereal, right? F U N E R E A L. And I love the way he used that term because we think about funerals as ways where we're letting somebody move on into their afterlife, and it's an occasion for grief, right? This person is no longer with us. But if you've ever been to a repast, Right, you know that that's also a celebration of all the things they did that made you laugh, that made you cry, that made you love them, that made you hate them. Right, and so that the funerals are for the living because the, the person did, you don't care what yeah. you buried him in, or, yeah. you know. And so they're not that really part checking was,
0: for the ceremony,
1: they're not checking <laughs> for you no more. They, they got their own thing to do, right? And so that part really animated me, and so I began to understand the libidinal economy as a way for us to talk about how we take things which cannot be measured in terms of their exchange, right, and make them a part of life. And I was also influenced in this by uh, Akhil Mbembe. He has a book out called Critique of Black Reason. And he has this conversation about it with David Theo Goldberg, who wrote Racist Culture. It's one of the canonical critical race texts. And he says for him... Blackness is the idea that we can repair ourselves against the desiccation, the literal extraction of life that modernity does to us, right? And I was like, that's freaking beautiful, right? He's like, anybody who wants to repair something believes that even though that thing is broken, it is worthy of having another life, right? I was like, boom, that's it. So for me, libidinal economy, helps me to operationalize this particular way of seeing the world, right? Because if you think about it, there are modes of exchange that we have for emotion and affect that actually undergird political economy and even economy itself. So like economists long have have been playing themselves because they assume that people are rational actors when it comes to how they spend their money right? They have obviously never seen these STEMI tweets that are going out. Like I got $1,400 walking up to McDonald's. Let me get the franchise. Exactly. the franchise? No, the franchise, right? <laughs> they don't understand that we make irrational decisions because we are driven by things other than the rational pursuit of some optimization, right? And so libidinal economy says even that political economic moment is itself a libidinal moment. It prioritizes a disengagement from the world, which is absolutely an emotional reaction, right? And it prioritizes rationality, which is also a disengagement from the world. Right. And so for my book, I turn to I talk about libidinal economy as an embodied cognition. And I was driven to that as well. And so I have all these sources that I pulled together. Right. There's a video that not a video, a clip that went viral. Uh, I think it was one of the web comedy series. And I don't remember who. And I can I can never find it to save it but it talked about how Black people react when they hear something funny, right? And it was just a clip of Black people exploding into different directions. Anytime they found something funny, they'll fall out of chairs, they'll die, they'll fall backwards and everything else, right? They're bent over and everything else. And that to me is an embodied cognition. You cannot contain your laughter to a simple utterance, ha, 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 out your mouth. Your whole body laughs with you, right? And so for me, that explains why Black folk are in many ways more attuned to the world that they live in, they kind of have to be, right, than what Western modernity gives them credit for. And even in the fact that we have to be watchful for the foolishness that might come our way from a one-six insurrection, we're also cracking jokes, right? on how these folk are playing themselves to try to get to this point. It's a unique set of perspectives back to double consciousness. This awareness of a communal interaction and this awareness of a different author calls a categorical nature of whiteness. Whiteness always wants to put us in categories, so then it can figure out how to extract. And the example this, this, this particular scholar said was the difference between black and white interactions. If a white person walks up on you and is introduced to you, their first question is, what do you do, right? And I've run into that many times. People are like, oh, so you're an adjunct? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. They gotta <laughs> categorize like, you some kind of way. They gotta, categorize. as opposed to when you walk up on a black person, they're like, "Where you stay? Who are your mom and them?" Right? They want to situate you in a community of people that they know and are comfortable with. And don't let you be from the same small town that their parents came from down south. It'll be a whole conversation. You'll be cousins by the time that conversation over, without ne'er mention of what you do for a living, right? And to me, that's a libidinal economy. That is. The expression of community as a source for connection, right? Absent, not necessarily absent of whether or not you have earnings potential or wealth or anything else, but more situating, we are living in the same circumstances. We could be familiar with one another and let's build off that. And so that's why libidinal economy worked really well for me. And it helped me to get to this point. Like I was doing libidinal economy before I knew I was. So for the Black Twitter article, I wrote that in like 2011, right, before Trayvon and before everybody else. And so I said some stuff in there that I ended up having to update for the book because, you know, Ferguson has happened, Michael Brown has happened, Ahmaud Arbery has happened, George. And so- Breonna Taylor, the list goes on and on. Right. The list is, is unfortunately damn near endless at this point. But I had to write, I wanted to say in this article, how we get to this political moment is because we built as a community before that. Right? We shared our commonplaces, our laughter, our joys, our fears, and then from that, a political movement was empowered. You can't have one without the other. Like you mentioned when we first started off talking, right? there are many activists who are activists all day. They mad at everything. right? And it's hard to have a conversation with them because they don't ever relax. right? They're constantly fighting for the struggle, and we can't fight all the time. That's not what we're built for. We have to have moments to recuperate and repair ourselves. And the libidinal economy, to me, expresses that better than pretty much anything else I've come across. Yeah, I mean, it's in that
0: you mentioned something that I think is going to spin us back toward the beginning. I want to ask this question, which I'm coming up off the top of my head, and then I want to actually get us to the very, very beginning where you talk about the Green Book, because I think that was really important even and because it's in the very beginning of the book. But it's, it's still something that despite that terrible movie, people don't really understand. So when you're talking about like stimulus checks and people kind of talking about stimulus checks online, it reminded me of a couple of things. One is again this conversation that kind of ties to the ratchet where folks are expressing what they think in joke about in jokes about getting this money from the government. Mm-hmm. And maybe the bigger conversation around reparations. And Mm. I remember Chappelle had a skit where he was talking about when black people get their reparations, they're going to be running out and doing this and doing that. And these are all, you know, just jokes and we could be able to do that. But there is also a pathology in the larger world that tries to mean test who should get things, whether it's reparations, whether it's the stimulus checks. And a lot of that is tied to a lack of trust in what anyone without wealth will do with money, but particularly what Black people will do once, quote unquote, given something, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to give you a chance to kind of reflect on that because, you know, I see, the, I see them as jokes, but I also believe that, you know, there's folks out there who believe that mess, right? Like they think, We're going to go out there because I've seen the memes used against us like, oh, stimulus checks came in and look, everybody's lining up for Jordans and, you know, whatever it could be when the reports come out that most people use that to pay down debt. Right. Like, you know, so I want to hear your thoughts on how we measure all of that
1: or, you know, should we even care? So I can definitely put this in a tech context. Right. And so right after Katrina. Somebody posted a picture of a little baby in New Orleans sitting on his grandpa's porch and he had an iPad. Had no shoes on, right? Had an iPad. And a lot of folk lost their mind. And in part that's because Black folk are not allowed to have leisure, not even by Black folk. Right, because we're still struggling to get fit. Like they're like, why this baby don't have no shoes? Why you got an iPad and no shoes? I'm like, have you been down south? Do you know black babies? Why do they need to wear shoes on their grandpa porch? Like that's just it's not necessary. Right. And so I think in many ways we're not entitled to either leisure or the even the appearance of leisure, right? In any social situation, because it signals somehow that we're not serious about being modern right? Modernity is the divorcing of desire from aspiration, right? Even though there is desire in that aspiration, we're supposed to do things which will establish us on a firm financial basis own land, buy appropriate clothing, right? And then, you know, live how they think the white people live, right? Which is funny to me because like, they're like, Mark Zuckerberg only wears a black t-shirt and blue jeans. I'm like, that t-shirt costs $400, Every one of them costs $400, like you don't know where he's sourcing his stuff from, but you see that it's plain and you don't associate that with excess. And so you try to va- valorize him for not spending his money on that. He bought a whole island and then kicked people off of it, right? That's excess way beyond think. okay, I'm digressing. So there's always been this con- this thread that Black people should not enjoy themselves until we get what we're owed. Right. Uh, and that takes its form in technology. Like the earlier move for understanding the digital divide in terms of broadband encountered a lot of pushback from black technologists, because when folks started saying, oh, well, black people can access the Internet through broadband equipped smartphones, black technologists are like, well, you can't do anything productive with a smartphone. That means they're not actually on the digital divide. They're just going to be on it playing games. And they use the example of te- black teens going into libraries to update their Facebook accounts, play on Zanga and Bebo and the like, play on Face uh, Zynga, right, playing Words with Friends and stuff. And they're like, see, if you give children just the opportunity to play, that's all they're going to do. Not realizing that play is an essential mode of learning how to do, right? If you look at animals, and I don't want to compare us to animals, but I'm, I pull a little bit from the animal behaviorists. And play is the way that, Predators teach their children how to hunt. Can't do one without the other, right? It's a situation where you can fail. The consequence for failure is minimal, right? You get dust yourself off and try again. And by mastering it, you eventually learn how to do it in a real world context. So in a similar vein, going back to Black Planet, people were encouraged to create their own home pages, right? But most people Creating a homepage is not easy. HTML is confusing as hell. CSS is worse, right? And so what a whole generation of 13-, 14-, and 18-year-olds did is learn HTML and CSS and make $10,000 a month selling homepages to Black people. Now, these homepages still had the, you know, the person in the wine glass holding the rose up under their chin and the autoplay music players and the back, and, you know, all the f- bells and whistles of 1999, 2005, the web. Right. But these kids learn the technical skills in order to enable people to see themselves as they wanted to be represented. And many of those kids are now full stack developers making high six figures to do what they do. Right. And so that ability to play, right, encouraged them to be able to do something that ended up making them money in the long term. And I bring that up to people over and over again because when you have spaces that allow people to create without fear of failure, then they manage to do fantastic things. Look at Jeff Bezos he managed to create with the $100,000 loan from his parents. And look what he did. He could have failed. His parents would have just written off the $100,000 as, you know, tax deduction to so on and so on. You know, he would have just gone about his day. But because he had the ability to fail and be supported without consequence, he managed to create these big things. I wish for Black children to have that opportunity every day, right? But in many cases, when we do have the opportunity to learn certain types of skills, it's always tied to if you don't do this, you'll never make money. Yeah. There's a lot of stakes in there. A lot of stakes in there. And it's understandable, but there has to be more to it than that. There has to. Anytime you allow a child to have joy and forget why they're doing something, even though they're learning something, they are automatically better at it. Right. It just that's just the way I look at, uh, you know, Leron and Jabria. Mm -hmm. Um, Jabria, are you smart? And Jabria just, yes. Jabria is a comedic genius right? She is so good at what she does. And I don't even think she knows how she does what she does, right? But Laurent has given her this space where he can showcase how dope his little sister is, or cousin, I'm never quite sure, right? Without fear of failure. And they were on the freaking Grammys. Was it the Grammy? Not the Grammys, the Golden Globes, right? A few weeks ago, just her being herself, right? And I see that. And I see the ways that these young kids are able to do these fantastic editing techniques on TikTok, where when I was their age, I was playing with light brights and failing, right? But they have accrued all these fantastic technical skills simply from the fact that they could play. Yeah. That I think is a lesson we should probably take from that, right? Is allowing people to have the failure without consequence, or at least significant consequence, as a way of getting ahead in the world, right? So if you want to buy Jordans with your $1,400 dollars, and the Jordans will make you happy because your homeboy's like, where you get those? And like, I ain't got to tell you where I got those. Those who know don't need to be told, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let them do that. That fourteen hundred dollars ain't gonna hurt nobody, right? Even and like you say, many more people will take that money and use it to pay bills, and that's cool too. But some people will line up in Lenox Mall down here in Atlanta with the metal detectors and the Gucci store and get their one Gucci belt, and I'm not mad at them as well because that makes them happy. And there's no telling what people can accomplish when they are happy and satisfied in themselves. Shout out to Linux. <laughs> Shout out to Linux Mall. Lot to see, <laughs> lot to see in Linux Mall <laughs> on,
0: on any given warm day. Um, I want to ask one more question before we get to off the dome and um, the drop, which is, like I said, is, it kind of brings us to the beginning of the book where you make what I think is a really eloquent and thoughtful connection of the, the networked reality of the what's officially called the Negro Motorist Green Book, more just referred to as the Green Book, as kind of the first Black networked reality. Mm. And in it, you describe so many countervailing, really, ideas, right? There's the aspirational of getting in a car. There's joy in that, mm. taking vacation. But then there's also the necessity of, you know, a segregated world where being in the wrong place at the wrong time you could die like with no hyperbole yeah. to that statement at all it was for your your personal safety of you and your family so i wanna i just found that to be so profound and and there were elements of it that i didn't even know even though i was fairly familiar with this genesis meaning that it was you know sponsored by people right like this was A normal thing that was U.S. Travel Bureau, whoever, was like, sure, this makes sense, right? So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of explain that connective tissue in your own words, because I think it's really a perfect way to typify the
1: book. And then we'll get to the final two segments of the show. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So there's always a Twitter thread. So Naima Cochran, who does Sunday sermons where she celebrates like musical artists and shows their videos and stuff. Fantastic work. Right. Recently brought up a thread where she started off with realizing that fried chicken is a non-perishable food. And she came to that conclusion because we, she started talking about how when there's a, a TikToker named Shay who does impressions of old people. And Shay was talking about how grandparents will get you up at three o'clock in the morning because they got to get on the road and beat the traffic. And in the process of doing so, they pack a cooler and the cooler has fried chicken in it. It has cold drinks wrapped in paper towels that are frozen first. right? It has all these preparations for a long trip where you know you will not be able to stop and get food. Right. And the Green Book recognizes this reality and codifies it because, you know, in many ways, it's an offshoot of the great migration of people from South Carolina, Arkansas, Mississippi, up to Chicago, New York and places in between. Right. And it recognized that people will need rest and repair on their way to travel to see their family either going up north or coming back down south. And in the process of those travels, they will navigate a network that is inimical to black life right? There will be many places where you don't stop. Shout out to I-80 in Pennsylvania, right? Or <laughs> I-65 through Indiana, right? There'll be many places that you will not stop because you know, if you do, there will be problems, right? The, the same way those folk packed a cooler, many of them had a pistol in the front seat. Like, just, let's just keep it real. So the Negro Motorist Green Book was fascinating to me because it collated all of these experiences and laid them out in a description of a network where you could travel Route 66 to go out west, or you could travel 75, before 75 was the thing, to get from Atlanta to Detroit, right? In a way that described the spaces that were available for rest, relaxation, and leisure. It also covered the Black Poconos the Black beaches at Atlantic City, the Black Myrtle Beach, right? The Black Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where a lot of Black people own property on Lake Michigan up in the UP, right? And went there for summer homes, right? So it offered also covered these spaces where Black people vacation and you knew you could go vacation there without hassle, right? You weren't Sammy Davis trying to go to the pool in Miami and they'd be told, no nigga, you can perform here, but you can't swim here, right? And so it helped us to build this network, not only of traversal, Right, of time and space, but also to rebuild and repair ourselves while we navigate these spaces that we knew were not safe for us to travel the sundown towns in the Midwest, the straight up racist speed traps in the South and in the West. Right. And so to me, that's why I understand it as a network browser, right? Because it's tied to, at the same time, the development of the United States highway network and Black motor ownership right? So at once we are owning cars. I don't know if you remember the scene in Color Purple where a boy shows up in his brand new car and people fall out, right? Because it was a thing, right? But also the development of this network, the highways, the gas stations, the diners and the stuff that other people could use to catch a bathroom break, to get a meal, but we could not use, right? And But by identifying alternative spaces, and in some cases it even followed some of the spaces, the pathways of the underground railroad, at least leading up through 95 up to Canada, right? It followed those spaces and built them out as a network of black identity, right? And I still see it as super significant, especially with the HBO special Lovecraft Country, because I think what Lovecraft Country does that the Negro Motorist Green Book doesn't do when you read it is Lovecraft Country helps you to realize that racism is just as monstrous as a tentacled horror from deep seated whatever Lovecraft's imagination was. Right, Racism is a monstrous thing. Right. And so Lovecraft's Country helps to put a an attractive faith, Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett on the realities of having to navigate the United States between 1890 and 1965. Right. And so for me, it's a really interesting metadata document. Right. It's not the places themselves. Right. It's not Yelp. Right. But it is Yelp in a way. And it sets out how to navigate this particular network. Yeah, it's a you know, it's
0: just a perfect perfectly situated example to kind of lead into the the theme of the book, which, you know, I always say this, the listeners are so tired of me saying that I always barely scratch the surface, but really the book is is truly dense. And like I said, we're living with the scholarship of it every day, but it's just a fantastic work. And I'm glad that, you know, we got a chance to play around with some of these ideas and, and you know, have a little bit of joy in this conversation. You know, I want to get us to off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. First thing, literally off the dome, you know? So I got four of them here. And my first one is, actually the first two are going to be Twitter related, but the first one is, what is the most
1: joyful black event on Twitter? Oh, the nigger Navy, without a doubt. Right? <laughs> There's one that came close, but the fact that I can't remember it and I can remember the Nigger Navy. The, yeah, the Nigger Navy was the, the ratchet uh, event extraordinary. <laughs> if you can take over Jack, you can become Jack, the owner and creator of Twitter. What would be the first thing you would change? Moderation policies. Because, you know, in Germany, Twitter does not allow Nazis and racists to use the network. So that's a geographical restriction, not a network restriction. So I would change that. But I would also make transparent the reasons why Black and brown men and women get locked out of their accounts for responding to racism, right, as a way to make the space more palatable. And when people understand the rules of discourse, they tend to relax and go with the flow, right, as opposed to feeling constantly antagonized. And I think being able to straight up address their content moderation would make Twitter a better space. Okay. Fair enough. If you can give one piece of advice to
0: your younger self, what would that be? Whether it's Commodore sixty four you or college you, or something not those two things
1: engineering is not your major switch (laughs) because I dropped out in 1990 and actually before 1988 right and didn't go back to school for 10 years and so if I had had the sense to do what I was supposed to be doing which is apparently talk about technology as opposed to create it I'd have been here a long time ago all right well brother you're
0: here now and as someone again academic you're in higher learning spaces this is going to be a complete dissentance academia, higher learning
1: is blank. Problematic. <laughs> I'm on a DEI committee and I can never remember what the I is for. I think it's inclusion. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if you remember the black square fiasco on Instagram. Uh, oh last yeah, year yeah. Of course. I, yeah. Black out your Instagram account. That's what higher education DEI efforts are like. It's performative. Right. And so I exist in this space because it allows me to write about video games and Twitter, but it's still a problematic space. Dude, I feel you on that. I do a lot of that work and like, <laughs> it is
0: it is anxiety
1: inducing on many levels. <laughs> you want me to relive my trauma and you don't want to pay me for it? They're, now we're back to being paid. right? Yeah. <laughs> they want me to do this extra work of helping them become better spaces to to be. But I'm supposed to do it off the same salary that you're asking me to create this type of book from. Like, nah, you gotta pay
0: me for that. Yeah, no like, bueno. No bueno. That's perfect, but thank you for those. And now we get to the drop, which is okay. you know, intellectual morsels, which always sounds more serious. I gotta come up with another tag phrase because it makes people feel like they gotta walk in with something so like incredibly deep, and it doesn't need to be that. But anyway, I have a drop. I hope you have a drop ready. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first?
1: Go first. I got you though.
0: All right. My drop is a movie that I just watched. Um, I think that was Friday night. Nomad Land, which I kind of walked in to thinking I wouldn't like it for a variety of reasons that I won't go into in this particular moment. But even though I'd heard good things, I kind of went in kind of with the little bit of screw face and Mm -hmm. actually ended up really, really enjoying it. I loved the movie. You know, it just spoke to a lot of things that I think about when it comes to fragile versus precarious and sort of the American. The failed American dream, so to speak, and the choices that we all make. I thought it was a, a really interesting dissection of those ideas, as, as seen through this one particular character and her communities. And um, highly recommend it to folks who are just looking for a film that I think, at the very least, will make you walk away and kind of think about a lot of different things. So, Nomad Lad is my drop for this week.
1: That's Francis McDormand, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like
0: I love her in Fargo. She's amazing. She's always good, Uh, but she's sometimes in real life. I see her interviewed, and I'm like, "You're kind of annoying me." But she's good at what she does, which is my hesitation to be honest. Like I just was like, "Yo, you sometimes you're just doing way too much." hmm. But she's
1: good in everything I see her in for the most part. (laughs) Um, So I have two. Uh, The first one is easy. I don't know if you've seen this yet. I have. I might, you know, I might have an essay in here, but what this book does is Kimberly and Jenna have really done a marvelous job in capturing the joy that I talk about on a regular basis. So Black Futures by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly and- Drew. And so that's my one drop. The other one is a video game because I still try to be true. Spider-Man, Miles Morales. And... Although it requires the acquisition of a PS4 and a good TV, what Miles Morales did, because I'm constantly interested in the representations of race in video games, is it captured an urban New York Afro-Latino experience in ways that I honestly have not seen, right? I spent a lot of time in New York. I spent like close to 20 years of my life there, right? And there are certain aspects of urban Northeastern Black life that this video game manages to capture really well. Right, and so I'm always recommending it to anybody who loved uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, right, which is also a fantastic movie. This is a way to be part of that particular lore and gaming about Spider-Man while still being able to see yourself represented on screen, which is not something that often happens for Black folks. So that would be my other drop.
0: Oh, that's a perfect drop, and you know we could have a whole separate conversation on how gaming and comics are also spaces sometimes very antagonistic to to Blackness, but also very influenced um, by Blackness. I'll throw anime in there as well. There all these other subcultures that, you know, we ain't even going to break into all of those, but maybe that's the time for another
1: another conversation. Uh, Kishana Grayon. Kishana just dropped her book, Intersectional Tech. She's a well-known scholar. She uh, studies Xbox Live and Black women gamers and this, the bullshit that they endure on that particular service. So bring her on. You'll love her. She's amazing.
0: That's, that counts as three drops right there. <laughs> I'm greedy. What can I tell oh, you? Oh, brother, it's all good. You know, this was a great conversation. I think we covered so much, but, you know, open the door, I think, for people to really explore and, you know, they need to get with your book, Distributed Blackness. I think, you know, you're one of the, the scholars that's really out there, I think, in these tech spaces, tech, AI, just a whole school of thinkers out there. I think, really doing important work. And it was a real pleasure having you on this episode of The Deep Dive with me.
1: It's been a pleasure being here with you. I appreciate you.
0: You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.